0: Hi, I'm Kevin Durrett and this is Truth Jihad Radio, where I bring on opinions that cast light on what's really going on in the world. Some of these views I don't necessarily completely agree with, but I would like to hear uh, viewpoints that uh, push back against some of mine if they're well expressed and have some kind of uh, insight or can spark uh, fresh thinking. So uh, if you like this kind of radio, please go to truthjihad.com. And click on the subscribe at substack button. Welcome to Truth Jihad Audiovisual. I'm Kevin Barrett waging the all-out struggle for truth and bringing on the most interesting voices who have something to contribute that's uh, not exactly part of the mainstream corporate-controlled pablum that they feed us every day. Today I'm really happy to be bringing back Germer Rudolph. He's one of the real free speech heroes of uh, the world as far as I'm concerned and he's with uh, castle hill books he has a long interesting story of being prosecuted imprisoned for his historical research and uh, he just published an interesting piece championing the values of free speech in relation to the ukraine russia nato conflict and i really enthusiastically agreed with some of it and enthusiastically disagreed with other parts. And there were a few parts that I kind of agreed and disagreed with at the same time. So it's the most interesting pro-Ukraine article I've yet come across. And uh, and, and that's, I don't know how much that's saying, but, but it's a good article. Anyway, welcome, Germer. How are you? No,
1: thank you. I'm doing fine.
0: Yes, out? I'm well, thank you. Yes, it's uh, it's a crazy time for free speech. And I totally sympathize with your... Uh, your, your headline, uh, which is, Give me freedom of speech or the world will end. Uh, I feel like that sometimes, too. What, what inspired that?
1: Um, it is a, a foreword, or preface it's my own work, to a book that I just issued as a second edition. And that is a, a history of censorship that I have encountered over the years, mainly um, enacted by Amazon. So the the title of the book is, uh, of that second edition, is The The Day Amazon Murdered Free Speech. And it shows how Amazon has ramped up uh, censorship uh, in general and against us in particular. And um, I also turned that into a a video documentary. And a friend of mine who has been reviewing that said that it's kind of rigged the wrong way because it goes into controversial historical research that uh, most people are not Open to. So, what you should do is start out with a free speech ideal and why it is important first, and go to censorship of mainstream scholars next, which people can get uh, sympathetic about easily, and then carry on from there to more controversial issues that less and less people would agree with. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that is probably true, so if you want to reach out to the masses, you have to start something out with something that people can really relate to. And um, within the, the context of the current Russian-Ukrainian war, uh, a month or two into it, um, I, I suddenly re- realized that one of the main contributing factors that have led to this war and that keeps it going uh, on both sides, but uh, more intensely on the, on the Russian side, is censorship. If if the Russian public, but also the 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 uh, in general any public were completely and openly informed of what their governments are planning, what they are doing, what they will be doing, and what the real situation on the ground is, then uh, governments couldn't get away with what they are doing, particularly in this uh, conflict. Um, so disinformation in the Russian public is, is massive, but uh, I say in this article while to believe that we in the West get the, the whole truth, would be very naive. Now that was geared toward um, free speech and the importance of it, because Russia, uh, a month into the war, when, when their first offensive in the north toward Kiev faltered, Uh, and they found themselves in a a precarious situation started making nuclear threats Um, and and so this conflict which I think had there been unfettered free speech in Russia would have never occurred, also unfettered free free speech and freedom in in Ukraine, Ukraine isn't um, completely free speech liberal country either then I think we wouldn't have ended up in this conflict and now as well I mean Russian mainstream media again and again threatening um, nuclear escalation, actually uh, lauding, kind of expecting and and welcoming nuclear escalation is outrageous and I, I have a hard time believing in a society that's free that has free exchanges of ideas would go along with that kind of um, attitude. Well, let let me give you
0: a devil's advocate position on that. Um, The polls show that Putin's popularity shot way back up. It had been running sort of 80%-ish for quite a while, and it dips a little bit below that here and there. And it was, I think, down to sort of the 60-ish or in the 60s before this war, and then it shot back up over eighty after the war. And within Russia, as I understand it, at all levels of society, except for among the people who are basically enamored of the West, uh, there, Putin is regarded as as a dove. He's regarded as a peacenik. Uh, he's he's a left kind of left wing peacenik. And the middle of the road is actually even more, shall we say, hawkish than than Putin. Um, And I would argue that there are very good reasons for that and that a well-informed person would recognize that most of the Russian propaganda discourse on this war is based on truth and accuracy, much more than the Western discourse, which is a complete uh, bizarre fantasy covering the fact that this war was largely orchestrated by the neoconservatives who overthrew the government of Ukraine in 2014 with the aim of uh, starting this war with Russia as a way to weaken Russia before they go on and conquer China and conquer the world. So that's my view. I think the Russians are actually co- entirely, uh, this, is, this is a classic defensive war on one's borders. It would be as if uh, a vastly more powerful country installed an America-hating, white person-hating or whatever, an ethnic American-hating government in Canada and or Mexico, and uh, was clearly basically ta- trying to break up the United States, destroy our industry and our uh, sovereignty as part of its world conquest plan. In that situation, all of us here would support a defensive war, and I think that's the situation in Russia. There's
1: no such thing as a defensive war when you invade a country.
0: Uh, it's in, in this case, uh, yeah. I, I think there is because I, I don't th- I don't think Ukraine is an independent country. Ukraine Ukraine was taken over by the empire of evil the neoconservative uh project that paul wolfowitz explained in the wolfowitz doctrine will never allow a challenger to arise it's planning on conquering the entire world so this world conquering leviathan state that's based primarily in dc but has branches in london and tel aviv and other places Uh, is bent on destroying Russia, as they nearly destroyed Russia in the 1990s. The Russian people are saying, no, you'll never do this to us again. We lost 10 years of life expectancy, uh, which is the equivalent of being utterly crushed and annihilated in an actual shooting war in the 1990s. And we're not going to let you do do this to us again. And I don't blame them.
1: Well, I can see that attitude and I, I have some sympathies for this. But the Russians are shooting themselves in the foot now because they, 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 they're already going through a demographic collapse. And the, the primary problem of all European countries is demographic collapse. And now Europeans are killing each other by the tens and in the long run, maybe hundreds of thousands. Exactly mm-hmm. the young population that is already dwindling, that was supposed to carry on that population. They're killing each other. Uh uh, R- Russia had a massive demographic problem after the Second World War because half of the young male population was wiped out in the Second World War. And they never really got out of this hole. And now they are uh, opening another one, and it's leading to more of this. Uh, a smart Putin, like any smart leader in Europe, would have focused entirely on, on preventing and reverting the demographic, uh, inverted demographic mm-hmm. pyramid. Instead, starting a war, which no matter which way it goes, will always lead to the kind of population that we need the most being murdered or killed the most, is just is just wrong. Hmm. In, in principle, is wrong. No matter where you stand on uh, what the United States' role is in here, and we can argue about um, that for a long time. I uh, I don't necessarily see the United States. Um, completely as an empire of evil. Uh, uh, The the piece I wrote there was primarily about the importance, to give an idea about the importance of free speech. Mm -hmm. For me, the real heroes in wars are the soldiers who lay down their weapon weapon and refuse to obey orders to kill their kin. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly extreme here because the difference between Russians and the inhabitants of of Ukraine, not not all of which could be identified as Ukrainians, um, is, is so minimal uh, that going to war is, and you see that in the reaction, the first reaction that some of these Ukrainian civilians had when they suddenly were faced with Russians coming in and getting in trouble, some of them were shot and the Ukrainian civilian population was helping them and say, what are you doing here? They were for 70, 80 years, their own soldiers, now they are separate by a border, and they come over the border, and they start shooting. What's going on? This this whole thing makes little sense. Well, wait a minute. For, for, for,
0: I'm sure you're aware that 55% of Ukrainians uh, speak Ukrainian as a mother tongue, and 45% speak Russian as a mother tongue, and that a, essentially a civil war between those two groups has been going on since the 2014 coup in which the neoconservatives installed a a new regime which is all based on hatred of ethnic russians meaning the 45 percent of ukrainians who speak russian and uh 15,000 or so ukrainian civilians um russian-speaking for the most part had been murdered in the donbass by this constant yeah. shelling that's been going on so there's been a civil war going on and russia has of course sympathized with the russian-speaking minority which has been crushed and you you, worry, you talk about free speech you, you, you're a Russian speaker in Ukraine, and you speak out. You're you're gone. You're disappeared. You're tortured. That's it. You're finished. Uh, they actually disappeared and tortured the leading opposition party member, as if the Democrat or Republican had disappeared and tortured um, the leading uh, Republican or Democrat here in the United States. So there's a civil war there, and it's obvious to me that the neoconservatives were able to empower the extreme anti-Russian speaker element of the Ukrainian speakers, set them on a genocidal path, and use that to provoke the situation that we're in today, which is, of course, what they wanted. And I agree with you, it's not a good thing for Russia. And I'm pretty sure the Russians wouldn't have done this if they didn't feel they had to. They would have been happy with the Minsk Accords. They would have been happy with just reasonable negotiations on no more NATO expansion. But, uh, of course, the Americans uh, snubbed them in the most outrageous way deliberately in order to provoke this war, which, as you say, is a tragedy for the Russians, the Ukrainians and all of the Europeans.
1: Yeah, well, um, I have posted um, on, on the website that I'm involved in, that's Kodo.com, the, the Committee for Open Debate on the Holocaust, a, a, a ukrainian flag and um i've said um something to the effect uh well, i can't even i need to look it up so that i quote myself correctly <laughs> it says stop war and aggression self-determination for everyone who wants it these are the two statements uh and people because there's a ukrainian flag people consider this uh, that i want to grant a self-determination only to ukrainians Back in 2014, when when um, Russia took Crimea and had a referendum then and won it. Uh, now, I'm not familiar exactly how they rigged the, the referendum, if it was really fair or some skewing going on there or whatever. But fact of the matter is, if you look at it historically, Crimea uh, has had more ties uh, to, to Russia than to Ukraine, and it ended up in Ukraine because... Um, the Soviet leader had been generous when they uh, defined the Ukrainian borders of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic and gave them more than they ethnically should have had. And with that statement, you, uh, self-determination, whoever wants it, I mean the people in Crimea, I mean all the Russians living in Ukraine that mm-hmm. decide for either side and are either not allowed to by the Ukrainians or don't get get any opportunity which way soever. Um, So this this cuts both ways. The Ukrainians should have their right to their own nation, and the Russians should have their right to their uh, self-determination if they want, whether a majority to join Russia or to be something independent altogether. That's the definition of self-determination. I think that yeah, that's that's reasonable,
0: and I actually uh, generally tend to agree with your idea of. The, the most heroic soldiers in the war are those who lay down their arms and refuse to kill their, their brothers and sisters. That's, uh, you know, I, I sympathize with all of that. I think in the real world, though, of the, the way things actually work, the way the game is currently played, which I uh, hope and pray will end as soon as Jesus comes back, but probably won't before that, um, in this real world that we're stuck in today... Um, there's a chess game kind of going on among Machiavellians of various stripes, some of them worse than others. And the specter of self-determination is, is used in all kinds of ways, uh, including very, very bad ways, uh, to put it in the most sort of simple and stark terms. The larger predatory entities, which uh, and, and there the larger entities are always virtually always the predatory entities geopolitically. Uh, are very happy to break up their victims into smaller units so they can be plundered more easily. Uh, I'm familiar with this from the Arab and Islamic worlds. Uh, All of the Arabic-speaking lands from the Middle East through all of North Africa should be one country. They have the same language. They have the same culture. uh, They have the same religion. They have the same history. There's no reason to have separate countries across North Africa and the Middle East, uh, in the Arabic-speaking part at least. But uh, they were busted up. It's supposed to be an Islamic caliphate, but it was all busted up by the enemies of the people of that region into small units. And in order to do that, they brainwash people and trick them into wanting, quote-unquote, self-determination. Today, uh, they're trying to break up Algeria and Morocco by getting the Berbers to want self-determination. They're trying to break up the you know they've broken up the gulf by giving the kuwaitis making the kuwaitis want self-determination kuwait should be part of a vastly larger uh, unit which would then have vastly more power and could get vastly better terms of trade and would be rich and developed and happy instead of the way it is today Uh, but by breaking up these entities into smaller units they are being destroyed and devoured and robbed and plundered by the large imperial units Given that, more often than not, the so-called right of self-determination is used in a, uh, a very bad way, and the people who fall for it are, are dupes.
1: Well, yes and no. Self-determination can to, to lead to um, a splintering of, of power and a, a, to, to the point that you have small units that are unable to act and unable to form uh, larger political units, but on the other hand, um, my experience, having grown up in Europe in uh, during the Cold War time, we had a a, a real uh, back then a real confrontation uh, between Soviet Russia and 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 the West. Uh, that is basically a continuation of. Uh, the confrontation that was there in the Second World War between Germany and, and Soviet Russia, and that was a continuation of of the the upheaval that came out of the end of the First World War with the Bolshevist Revolution. Um, <clears throat> so you have had in Europe the experience, and you see that with most of these Eastern uh, European countries, if you look at who is most radical when it comes to fighting Russia, it's not even the United States. The United States and the UK are pushing. Uh, But the most extreme are uh, the Baltic countries, Poland, uh, Slovakia, all the countries that are right at the border and have their uh, century-long experience with uh, Soviet aggression and occupation and and dictatorial domination. In other words, uh, Russian imperialism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Russian imperialism is is something that's been around for the better part of 300 years. Uh, The first um, 100 years of these 300 years, It was directed mainly toward the East, conquering Siberia, and nobody in Europe cared, because the Siberian um, kind of Stone Age tribes, uh, who cared about them? Uh, So let Russia conquer everything until Alaska, and nobody really cared. Of course, Alaska was sold eventually, uh, some, some 115 years ago to the US, but until then it was Russian, the Russian massive expansion to the East. And then, in the seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds, Russia turned more west and started uh, conquering uh, Baltic uh, into the Caucasus and expanding and colliding more and more with with the the countries in the in the west, like Finland, Baltic, uh, Poland, and so forth. Um, and this this uh, got most extreme under Bolshevism because the ideology, uh, Bolshevik ideology, lo- uh, allowed extreme measures, any measures, with some ideology that um, during the uh, Bolshevist Revolution uh, unleashed mass atrocities among the Russians themselves, but also among neighboring countries. And um, the European experience continued in the Second World War, uh, where uh, the conflict was extended and then uh, it was The the German push was, first of all, an anti-Russian imperialist push, but it was, of course, also a German imperialist push trying to uh, uh, turn Russia, uh, chop up Russia and and, and take uh, huge swaths of land there. Uh, But uh, it it ended with Russia reconquering again and and dominating and suppressing. And those those, uh, Eastern European countries, I had the um, experience in 1984, during the Cold War still, of uh, accidentally being arrested in communist Czechoslovakia, ending up in a prison there, Mm -hmm. and uh, going through a a number of young Czech prisoners uh, that were coming for petty crimes, usually. And, and some of them actually for for uh, thought crimes. And what I experienced there, with talking with these young people that were up in my age back then, I was I was just nineteen. Um, I talked to them. We, we were, my English wasn't very good, and theirs was even worse. But we managed to to converse a little bit in English. And what I found out is that uh, having been exposed. decades, many decades of uh, Soviet Russian communist propaganda, they saw the world bipolar. There is communism, which was displayed as the great ideology by their government and fair and just and good, but their own experience on the ground was suppression and persecution and and, uh, economic strife. And then they saw in these border countries, in Czechoslovakia and Poland, they could receive Western TV and they see how people live there. And the Russian propaganda was depicting this as the revanchist Nazi fascist forces. So for them, it was bipolar. Either you are communist with the government that we have that suppresses us and occupies us, which we don't want, or the alternative is Nazi. You need to be a Nazi. That's the only one uh, that obviously works in the West. And so when the Eastern Bloc collapsed in 89 90 there was in all of these countries this uh, sudden liberation you know it's, it's like a kettle under pressure that wasn't for, for decades allowed to release its pressure that was just boiling and suddenly the lid blows off and the whole thing just blows out. Nationalist um uprising patriotic reawakening and, and at the same time a rise of ideas that thought this bipolar word we reject communism so now we turn all Nazi uh, nationalist, revanchist and and um, go after all the minorities we don't like. Right yeah, but, there was a lot
0: of bloodshed in the Balkans at that point.
1: Yeah the, in the, these countries in particular I mean the the, the, the Balkans, but all in, in the Balticon, the Estonia, Lithu- Lithuania, Latvia, they have been so suppressed and and ethnically, uh, there was so much, I mean, both, all uh, three countries collaborated with the Germans, the civilian population to a large degree. And uh, the, the, when the Russians came back in, there was massive retaliation, deportation, and an attempt to Russify uh, for this next uh, four or five decades, these areas by um, uh, targeting, these populations for, for um, replacement. So a, a settlement policy of putting Russians in there, of employing Russians only in, in state and in, in industry and so forth, so to push the Balti- Baltic people uh, out of there. And once these countries were independent after Soviet collapse, they had the counter-movement of trying to push the Russians out. They were then persecuting the Russians. The very same thing you see, I you know, you have seen in Ukraine, and that's a reaction uh, uh, that, from what I have learned, is understandable. they were so brainwashed, they saw the word bipolar either you're this or you're that. For them, there is no middle path, or there was none. Ukraine had the disadvantage that it was not included in the European Union, and I explain that in a second. I have seen in the Baltic countries their attempt as ethnically cleansing the russians out of these countries pushing them out declaring russian a unwanted language not allowing teaching in school not accepting it as a as a language in in courts and so forth uh, causing uh, tensions to the point that it could have erupted in, into a civil war once these countries had joined the european union the european union requires every member country to give ethnic and any kind of minority equal rights right to self-determination right to their language right to teach them at school and and to to have it as a court language or official language and so forth that ended the conflict in the baltic countries when those nationalist overreactions were stymied or were, were, were checked by, by European Union policies. Now, if you look into the European Union history, um, Europe used to be a hotbed of ethnic conflicts and terrorism. You had the Corsicans in the 50s and 60s bombing the, uh, the uh, French mainland because they wanted to de- be independent. The Basques, Southern Tyrol, uh, the, the Ireland, Northern Ireland conflict, all these were kind of civil wars that were going on in many countries in Europe. And they were all settled, and they all turned out to be peaceful. Now, nobody has heard for decades anymore of any of these conflicts. They are all over because all these countries are now required to recognise uh, minority rights, to give them um, autonomy to some degrees, but while at the same time, the territorial integrity of the nations are guaranteed, so that those in power don't feel like they have to retaliate, they have to uh, suppress minorities because the minorities could be a threat to territorial integrity. Europe has solved these problems because of the drastic policies of making it mandatory for every member state to give their minorities minority rights. They have pacified Europe throughout. Ukraine did not become a member of the European Union so far and this is i think something that could have solved the problem but didn't they want to get it on fast track to get it in the european union i think that could solve the problem but i don't think that the european union realizes what they're going to get because the ukrainians already beforehand but most certainly now in the wake of this war have become extremely nationalistic and 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 russia phobe uh to the point There is so much hatred. They revel in murdering as many Russians as they can. I don't see necessarily the same attitude with the the Russians. The Russian soldiers that are coming in there, they're not enthusiastic about the the war. They're being sent there because their government makes them at times even with with guns drawn. Either you go forward and and fight the Ukrainians or I shoot you. There's a similar policy as Stalin had it in the Second World War uh, where his soldiers... Do do, do you have uh, good evidence uh, for that? What was
0: that? Do you have good evidence for that assertion? Because I uh, haven't, I mean, I've seen a number of kind of bizarre, you know, Western propaganda claims about uh, Russian military uh, attitudes and desertion, things like that. But it was interesting that actually when there was a crisis of desertion from the Ukrainian military recently that actually got some publicity in the West, it broke into the New York Times and Washington Post uh, that, these conscripts with zero military skills were being, you know, they, they volunteered for sort of a National Guard situation so they wouldn't have to fight. And then they were being sent to the front lines and just slaughtered and then escaping and then being tried for treason. And so this is a huge problem for the Ukrainians. And right when that came to light, suddenly there was a, a slew of what looked like nonsense propaganda stories sort of showing a mirror image of that supposedly happening on the Russian side. So, in any case, I. I curious about what your sources are for for this claim that the Russian soldiers aren't, don't want to fight from what I've seen. It looks like they're basically pretty professional, well-trained uh, and well-paid uh, professional soldiers, whereas on the Ukrainian side you, you have some of those, but a lot of them have been knocked out by the Russian success during the beginning of the war, and so you're left with a lot of uh, conscripts who don't want to be there.
1: Well, you know the sources that we all rely on. I have seen um, Russian, uh, assuming it is authentic. There is no way for me to 100% be sure of that. But Russian units actually uh, recording themselves, standing up in protest and saying this and this is going on, and we don't want to fight under these circumstances, and then reporting on how they were threatened. But be that as it may. I think that goes on in every war on every side, and it's only normal. And that's actually the kind of attitude that I like to see, you know. The, the, my heroes are the German and Russian soldiers in the First War, the German and English soldiers in the First World War around Christmas 2015, and again t- Christmas 2016, when in the trenches they heard that they sing the same songs, only different languages, and they laid down their weapon and celebrated Christmas together for several days or even a week. And the high commands let them do that. And after it was all over, they told them to pick up weapons and fight again. Um, so I, I would say it, 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 I hope it happens, and then increasingly so on all sides of war, because that's the right attitude.
0: Yeah, and, and that does tie in with the theme of your article about freedom of speech being uh, capable of stopping wars. But I, I think we also need to sort of think about not so much just like the Uh, official respect of freedom of speech, which we do have uh, quite a bit here in the United States compared to most countries, which is why um, you can run your publishing house here. And probably there are a lot of countries, uh, including most of Europe and even Canada, where you might have a problem trying to publish your historical research because it cuts against the grain of, of the official myths. Uh, so it's it's great that you and I can sit here and be so far outside of the mainstream and uh, not be arrested or completely shut down, you know, just somewhat deplatformed and harassed. However, uh, it seems to me that. This war, uh, came, the primary responsibility for it clearly is the people in you know, the, the neocons. Again, the, the, the brain trust in the U.S. You know, strategic headquarters where they think about, you know, what are we going to have to do to prevent the rise of any great powers that could ever challenge us anywhere on Earth? And that's where this whole Ukraine thing was manufactured. It get, they started on this plan at least a decade and a half ago. And so uh, the nominal freedom of speech that we enjoy in the United States under the First Amendment has been a very, very little help in stopping that. Just as, you know, the classic example that I would bring up is uh, after nine eleven, it was so obvious to anyone with eyes that this was a false flag inside job. The towers had been blown up. Building 7 had been blown up. Whatever happened to the Pentagon? It sure wasn't Hany Hunter flying a plane into it, and so on and so forth. Uh, and yet, as obvious as this was, I mean, they might as the government might as well have just made all the TV uh, networks have a big flashing red neon "lie, lie, lie" as everything they ever said about 9/11. A- and yet, uh, even though we have free speech, we were unable to stop these wars that ended up killing, well. 25 plus million people, according to Gillian Paglia, and a few million according to uh, the uh, 9-11 wars Holocaust deniers, (laughs) Uh, the free speech didn't really help. I mean, I've been yapping my head off about this now for the better part of two decades, and I don't know if I saved any lives at all. Um, So why is that? Well, it's because we've got a technologized propaganda apparatus that is able to Put out uh, mighty Wurlitzer lies and, and sing this chorus of propaganda with such power that uh, it gets its way. And so, yeah. again, again, it's and I think that the U.S. is the aggressor here, as in every every war the U.S. has fought uh, since the Revolutionary War, the U.S. has been the aggressor, and it's always managed to disguise that fact in its public relations and propaganda. Uh, now, so the freedom of speech hasn't I, helped us.
1: I, I the aggressors. Is it, it, the country that picks up the weapon and makes an invasion? The United States may have been involved in laying a trap, and the Russians went. Yeah, well, yeah, oh, making a war a like
0: Pearl Harbor, huh? Like Pearl, like Pearl Harbor. The U.S. Yeah. made made yeah. it inevitable that that it, attack it was, happened it, deliberately. The
1: Japanese took the bait,
0: right? Uh, but if if uh, ultimately, whoever has the power to manufacture a war and chooses to manufacture that war and make it essentially inevitable, they're the number one person to blame for the war, not the person who fired the first shot.
1: It wasn't inevitable. It is never inevitable. Inevitable. If if the Japanese decide to uh, attack Pearl Harbor, that's a a move of desperation because they they want to keep their own imperialistic uh, endeavors in, in mainland China, and Indonesia going, uh, that's their decision, but it was not a must decision. Well, they were they, the running out of Germany. oil. Hitler Germany had a lot of reason and justifications to, to, to pick a fight with, with Poland, but uh, ultimately uh, they didn't have to. They had won so much, uh, including Czechia and Austria, and they have expanded and, and gotten so powerful in Europe had they just maintained a peaceful course, written off Danzig uh, and left it there, at that they would have been a dominating power in Europe for for centuries to come.
0: Well, see, one one can certainly always make these kinds of arguments, just as with a schoolyard bully. When the schoolyard bully taunts and taunts and taunts the little kid, uh, and finally the little kid can't stand it anymore and takes a swing at him, and then the bully horribly beats up the little kid, you can say, well, the little kid took the first swing at the bully. However, look looking at power dynamics the more powerful party that creates the conflict is is to my mind the most responsible and that is not always the one that fires the first shot
1: well they're responsibly they're responsibly shared in, in, in many regard if we look at the Polish German conflict uh, there were uh, polish ethnic cleansings going on and that's ultimately the the, the justification, and, and the, the Brits in particular uh, firing up Polish passions and, and encouraging to to provoke the, 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 the living daylight out of the Germans. Uh, but still, uh, somebody has to take the bait, and uh, knowing that you're surrounded by hostile powers or by overwhelmingly more powerful powers, uh, it should make you think twice what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, be that as it may violence and, and this is what i'm teaching my children and it's the same with countries violence can't be this the, the answer yeah you know, the smart kids bully not by hitting not by by hurting outright but by painful words and and little jabs here and there and and uh more social actions than physical actions and even though that's all true just coming out and becoming physical it cannot be the solution it, it just never uh, we have children who have exactly that problem we have a daughter who who uh, gets into conflict because some people don't like her attitude and then they lash out against her not physically int- initially but uh, socially and finally she has it and goes to extremes and then she's the one always getting in trouble mm-hmm. and uh there is just a and i have a son who is, actually does get physical because then he feels threatened and feels this and that and the only solution he can find is then becoming physical oh he stopped that now for two years
0: so you're actually speaking from experience here you're not just giving us theory <laughs> no it is you
1: know, raising kids i've raised five kids and i'm still in the business of raising raising two more one is 12 and one is 15 and that's a constant thing going on in social life in interhuman actions of adolescents, in particular, kids in adolescents. I mean, it continues in different ways in the adult world, uh, and it continues in, 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 in this larger societal context, and in, in the uh, international context, it's all the same. If you uh, eventually find yourself so provoked that you can't stand it anymore, and then you lash out massively with violence, then you always put yourself in the wrong. That's, and, and, and it's just not the solution to go for. That's why I say, and to war and aggression, that's, that cannot be the solution.
0: Well, I think that's a really I mean, you know, good heuristic.
1: Ukraine joins European Union and NATO, but at the end of the day, that is also a matter of self-determination. If the Ukrainians or the part of Ukrainian that, that at the end of the day is still Ukraine decides that's what they want to do, uh, Russia doesn't have the right to determine what a neighboring country does when it comes to alliances and vice versa.
0: So, so what, what do you think of the uh, the argument by uh, let's see, uh, the, well the, a number of the people of the realist school have pointed out that in, in situations where uh, great powers um, feel they're facing an existential threat that they are going to do uh, what, what is necessary to try to stop or contain that threat, and that in this case, uh, John Mersheimer was the most famous who's uh, discussed this regarding Ukraine. Uh, so he, his, his explanation would be that given the rules of the game as power politics is played between nation states, that there is simply no way that you know, somebody who understands the, the field would ever say what you just said. That is, anybody can join any alliance they want. So again, that means Canada can join the alliance of the vastly more powerful country uh, that has tricked the you know, Canadians into installing a, a rabid anti-American regime that wants to murder all Americans in power in Toronto and then use that to destroy the United States and break it up into pieces and loot its raw materials. As John Mersheimer would say, that's a non-starter for the United States, just as doing the same thing to Ukraine is a non-starter for Russia. And it'll always be that let's, way. Let's and your talk, theory about freedom to join alliances is, is just, you know, it's, it's complete, uh, it's, it's hallucinatory.
1: Let's talk about Russia. Russia has two choices in the future either become an appendix of the United States or become an appendix of China. Russia is done. Russia is declining, demographically collapsing. They have no young generation. In another one or two generations, their population will be dwindling down to half. They have no mass immigrations like the United States has, like Europe has. They cannot maintain anything. The economy will decline accordingly. Because it goes per capita, and if the, you cut the population in half, the economy goes in half. Russia is a declining power very fast, and they will not be able to maintain any of their power position. For them, it's a choice to make do you want to be an appendix of China or the West? That's the two choices they have. But wait, wait, if wait a minute. They uh, can be in isolation <laughs> and independent. It's just completely unrealistic.
0: Well, Gemma, though, uh, if, if I were in Moscow thinking these things through, And I said, okay, Grummar tells me I've got to either be an appendix to the United States or to China. Well, let's think about this. Okay, let's look at these two countries, the United States and China, and look at their histories and how they deal with uh, countries at substantial distances away from them. Moscow is quite a ways from Beijing, uh, as is Washington. And what I would see, if I were uh, sitting there in the Kremlin, is I would see that the United States is run by a bunch of absolute psychopaths who have been trying to conquer everything they can get their greedy hands on at the other side of the world, and that this is uh, an expression of the worst of Western culture, which in its uh, colonial period uh, for the past 500 years went all over the world uh, conquering, enslaving, and brutalizing people. And whereas the Chinese, who had the capacity to do that, they had ships that were 100 times bigger than the European ships 100 years before Columbus, and they sailed all over the world. They, they made it to, to all parts of Africa, North America, uh, and they traded and they studied and they came home, and they didn't engage in war with anybody and so given the history in which the West and especially the United States, the, uh, the, the metastasized, you know, canth- cancerous apotheosis of the West uh, is continuing this world conquering kind of behavior. Whereas China has been you know, sometimes rough on the people right there on its borders, but hasn't expanded all that much and has shown no desire to travel for thousands of miles to impose its uh, will on other people and loot them that I would certainly become an appendix of China, because I wouldn't be an appendix of China, I would be part of a multi. I would be one pole of a multipolar world, and I would still have five times as many nuclear weapons as China. And in that multipolar world, I would expect to thrive. Whereas if I give it to the Americans, I'm dead. They're going to do to me what they did to the Russians during the Yeltsin era, only worse. We won't just lose 10 years of life expectancy, we'll lose a couple of decades. And they'll, that's, you know, not only will we have our demographic problem, we're going to have a demographic problem in spades as they bust us up in to numerous smaller entities, loot all our raw materials, and basically enslave our people, as these Western colonizers have done everywhere they've gone. So give me a world with China at the center.
1: Yeah, that's the choice. We make that choice. That's
0: the only choice. How could they possibly make any other choice? Yeah,
1: I mean, if... Yeah, the, the I don't know whether the Chinese political system is something that I prefer over over the U.S. political system. I would say I don't. Um, I'd rather live with the U.S. political system. But look at the United States. For let's look look at the United the United States. Russia is a declining power. It has been declining very clearly ever since eighty nine, ninety, ninety one. It will continue to do so, particularly after this war. It will be uh, weakened, and the 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 trend will be accelerated. But the United States is a declining power too. people don't don't realize that just because it still controls uh, the US dollar as the world reserve currency, which is the only one that keeps this country afloat, afloat, because basically the country is broke and the economy keeps uh, kind of stable is stabilized only because there's still mass immigration. If you look at the growth of the economy and the growth of the population, it goes parallel. If it weren't for mass immigration, the, 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 the economy had collapsed. Uh, the, the US dollar would have been replaced by other reserve currencies and that would be the end. The empire is completely overstretched um, and the resources are, are, are simply not there to maintain it, particularly if we look at China, the size of China, its economic potential and growth. Uh, just look at the manufacturing hub of basically everything, what is it, a quarter of everything that's being produced in the world is produced in China or something like that, or is it even more Uh, It's not the United States where stuff is made anymore. China is the rising power. It's not the United States. The United States now can maintain its status as the world's dominating superpower only because of its completely overblown military, industrial, and security complex that eats up such ridiculous amounts of money compared to what all the rest of the world is spending. And... um, I sometimes wish that that during the current discussion of the mass shootings going on in this country, you know, what is it, the United States is the country where 50 percent of all the mass shootings in the world happen, but it's not 50 percent of the population. Um, What is it that that makes this country have this infamous record? And uh, then they point to the Second Amendment and freedom to have guns. But there are other countries that have similar freedoms and similar number of guns in people's hands. So this this is not really it. I ask an immigrant who has lived in many other societies what they think about America compared to other societies. And the answer is, America uh, is a country, is a culture that celebrates... The solution of conflicts with violence, with brute force. It is a country that celebrates violence and brute force. There is no country on the world where show wrestling is such a big thing as in this country. There is no country in the world where football, where people actually, with an aim is to hurt people, to knock people out, where such a sport, any other sport in the world where, where people are massive flock to sport. if you commit a foul, you, you hurt a, a, a an opponent you get punished for it. In football, it is the aim to hurt, not not physically, but basically if you ran into a person, of course you hurt them. <laughs> and if you look at how America celebrates their holidays, memorial days, uh, how they celebrate their army, their soldiers, and, and, and you know, the reason why you sp- still speak English in the country is because of our soldiers they're prevented what nobody ever tried to invade uh, this country except for the English and they have to speak the same language the Japanese they, 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 they tried uh, Hawaii when Hawaii wasn't even a part of the United States yet it was still a colony um, so if you have lived in other countries and you come here you see how militarized how Embracing of violence, of solving problems with force, with violence, of having a culture of violence is so through and through a part of the American fabric. There is a definition of fascism that is the celebration of violence and force. That is ult-
0: Okay, we're back. Uh, Germer, you just had a blackout?
1: Yes, I blacked and I'm supposed to have battery back up, but so for some reason it didn't kick in and everything got thrown out, so I do to reboot uh, everything. So How
0: odd. You oh, know, whenever so. I interview dissidents like you and this sort of thing happens, I start to get a little bit paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. nothing you're so, saying
1: really should be that.
0: I, yeah, actually, you are know, you, you criticizing the United States of America. You are calling us a nation of violent, angry people.
1: Uh, Matruism. <laughs> uh, that's a culture that is... Uh, It starts, you know, you live in other countries and they come here and then early in the morning, four o'clock, a guy with a tuned revved up uh, pickup truck uh, with a manipulated muffler comes roaring up the road at maximum uh, decibel, waking up the whole neighborhood and thinks it's cool in most countries that would be illegal in european countries at least there is something like noise pollution if your vehicle or whatever device you have makes too much noise it can be pulled off the road and out of commission well,
0: theoretically that heck, you can hear too but it
1: often isn't enforced it's not gonna happen yeah, okay. so it's, it's... yeah yeah it's a it's a,
0: we're, it's a crazy country you know i, I recently read uh, cormac mccarthy's book blood meridian and if you want uh, a real historical novel about the violence that is such a part of the American conquest experience. I highly recommend that novel if you have a strong stomach. Um, and so I think there's a historical reason uh, why uh, Americans do have that, that violent and aggressive side um, in, in many of them. But in any case, that, I think that's part of what's going on here with Russia. I think Russia, despite its imperialism, is generally defensive-minded, and it, uh, its aggression is kind of a defensive aggression for the most part, Uh, And likewise, China. These are both land, continental land powers that are kind of expansive a little bit around their borders, but not just plundering pirates like the, you know, what Buckminster Fuller called the the Western Sea Pirates who traveled around the whole world and and conquered it. And of course, the, the, the Americas were settled by the people who wanted to aggressively go out and grab what they could uh, using uh, slavery and stealing land and resources from the natives uh, to do it. And so those people were probably those with genetic or basic predispositions to be very aggressive. uh, And the ones who survived and thrived could be could be violent.
1: I wouldn't say that's genetic, you know, m- most people in Australia are descendants of hardened criminals, that mm. doesn't make the cause. Well, it's certainly not all
0: genetic, but there I think there might be a little predisposition. And then the culture too, of course, uh gets gets passed on. Here here, you know, we I've noticed that uh, the the people, you know, Americans go to war, they come home, they're messed up. <laughs> they transmit their messed up you know, quality their their traumatic war experience, uh, personality defects to their kids, and many times you do have these families where each generation goes off to war and gets screwed up and <laughs> gives birth to a new screwed up generation. So I think that the history of these American wars is, is is part of that. And you know, we've been fighting these wars of choice, wars that the United States profited from, orchestrated in order to profit from. That's been basically every war since it, probably the Revolution, uh, maybe even yeah. that.
1: It, it, the the only Remedy, really, because, I mean, I look back at at, uh, Prussia having been a a country that uh, had no natural borders and was in conflict with its neighbors for, for centuries, and they developed a militaristic culture, because that was for them the only way of making sure they keep existing against all the hostilities left and right. But, of course, that ended up with a Germany, a united Germany, that uh, was also militaristic and that was frowned upon uh, by all the other European uh, countries. And before you knew it, we had the First World War. And after the two world wars, the the Germans kind of had learned their lesson. And uh, now their militaristic attitude had been completely gone. They may have learned it a little too well. Now everybody wants to rekindle it, you know. (laughs) That's that's so ridiculous. eh? Now the, the West expects... Germany to build out a massive army, march through Poland, and fight against Russia. Wait a minute. We had done that 70 <laughs> years ago, and we got beaten up by you the last time. So what mm-hmm. will make you think we're Ma- doing this now? Marching on Moscow out. doesn't usually work that well,
0: and you certainly don't want to do it in the winter.
1: <laughs> so the, the Germans uh, extremely reluctant, and, and understandably so. We were, this is, this is, that's not right, what's going on here. Um, and uh, unfortunately, most countries in Europe had to lose wars and go through the devastation of war to realize it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. America has lost, I would say, skirmishes abroad that didn't really affect the homeland, like, like uh, Vietnam or now the retreat from Afghanistan. Now, kind of got shrugged off um, sooner or later. It didn't really affect, it didn't teach the lesson, it didn't hit home. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this is probably what it's going to take and it's gonna be unpleasant for, for this country here to go through a re-education process to realize violence mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and brute force is not the method, is not the way to go. Mm-hmm. And how, uh,
0: how, how might that lesson arrive? It could be a civil war, it could conceivably the way that they're going, it could even be a nuclear war with Russia.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I hope you know, I'm sitting here not too far away from D.C. I, I am, I'm yeah. not keen on on any kind of that exchange.
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody in their right mind is, is keen on a nuclear exchange. And I, I do kind of sympathize with, with your article making the point that Russia's nuclear threats are completely insane. Um, and, and, of course, so is the aggression that elicited those threats from the West. And so, yeah, we're living in a completely insane world. And uh, yeah. I do appreciate your, your article.
1: Uh, and one, one thing... I want to add, free speech is the first step to prevent this. Mm -hmm. What we really need is not the right to speak one's mind, but the right to be heard. Mm -hmm. What use is free speech if I can uh, do that only without any audience? If if the powers that be, with all their money, with all their influence, with all their way of rigging society, make sure that nobody has the ability to listen to me. Mm -hmm. That I cannot publish stuff on Amazon, that I cannot publish anything on YouTube, and, and, and. Mm-hmm. So, unless I have a right to be heard, free speech is useless.
0: Here, hear. Yeah, that's what I've noticed since I've been uh, talking about some very obvious facts about 9-11, again, for almost two decades, and uh, have fought every possible way I can think of to be heard, have been heard some, but not nearly enough. Well, uh, I hope that eventually, uh, or sooner rather than later, that the American people will wake up to the horrific reality that's coming if we don't find a better way to solve problems than through violence, threat of violence and, and orchestrating violence, which I think is what we're doing over in Ukraine right now. Thank you, Gemma Rudolph. I appreciate your excellent article. By far the most interesting, thought-provoking and indeed defensible uh, defense of Ukraine that I've yet run across. Uh, it made me rethink things a little bit. So congratulations. Thank you. Okay, and take care. Keep up the great work. God Just bless. Thank Bye-bye.